Good morning. Welcome to Parkway Church. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew 2. As we just read, we will be in verses 13 through 18 this morning. Again, Matthew 2, 13 through 18. Typically, what I do is uh, I begin with an illustration that uh, may or may not have something to do with, uh, with the text, but I'm not going to do so today for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I've been here for six years and I'm running out of material. And, uh, and then also, number two, it's kind of hard, surprisingly, to find a really funny anecdote about like the murder of Jewish kids, right? And that's what our text is about. And, uh, and so I'm just going to skip over that part entirely, not that part of the sermon, but uh, trying to make light of that or something like that. Besides that, it is a bit awkward timing for us to be talking about this passage. This passage is a difficult passage in and of itself. So anytime you're trying to talk about this particular passage, it's going to have some difficulties, but it has particular uh, weight for us in this season as a church. If you're a covenant member, you know that uh, we have uh, some covenant members who lost their uh, six-week-old daughter just a couple of weeks ago, and we're still going, we're, we're doing the memorial service this next weekend. And so talking about a text that involves the murder of children uh, immediately after losing one of our own is, uh, is difficult. So rather than do some sort of opening anecdote or illustration or something like that, I thought I'd just give us uh, space to pray. And, uh, and so uh, I thought first I would ask you, like we do every week, just to pray for yourself. If you want to know what, what should I be praying in this time, uh, a helpful acronym to remember is IOUS. Like IOU, like IOU something, IOUS. Uh, incline my heart to your testimonies. That's the I. Incline. Open my eyes that I would behold glorious things in your word. That's the O. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's the U. And then satisfy me this morning with your steadfast love. That's the S. And so you're asking the Lord to actually, by his spirit, impress upon you the truth of this word, that it wouldn't just go in and out of your ears, but that it might actually sink down into your heart and, uh, and change you, transform you. And so would you pray for yourself? I'll give you just a bit of space for that. Next, would you pray that for our church? Maybe you want to pray in particular for the Steve's family as they continue to grieve. I want to pray that we would have uh, corporate eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would treasure God's word. And then lastly, will you pray for me? So, Father, we're grateful for an opportunity for us to gather this morning and to consider your word. Pray that as we behold Christ, that your spirit would transform us to look more like him. Pray these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts, so we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew 2, 
Verse 13, we'll start there. Matthew 2.13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Let's set up a bit of the context. This is the fourth week that we've been in the book of Matthew. Week one, we talked about the genealogy of Jesus. And in particular, we talked about the fact that uh, Jesus is uh, of this Davidic descent. So it's not merely that Jesus is descended from Abraham, although that is important. He's the son of Abraham. But he is also the son of David. He is the promised king, the deliverer, the Messiah, the Christ. And so that's week one. We talked about his genealogy. Week two, we talked about the virgin birth and why that's essential for the gospel because it means he's not merely the son of Abraham and the son of David and the son of man. He's also the son of God. And in week three, we talked about the the Magi and this foreshadowing that we have there that the gospel, uh, that uh, that Matthew is going to uh, show us this theme throughout his gospel, that uh, that the Gentiles are going to be the ones who are going to receive the gospel, while the Jewish leaders, by and large, the ones who are going to reject him, including the king, at that time, the king of the Jews at the time, whose name was Herod. And then Herod's rejection of the king, of Jesus, is what uh, sets us up for today's passage. So Herod tells the Magi, these men from the east, we don't really know much about them. We talked about this last week. We don't know how many there were or if they were kings or not or whatever it might be. But these Magi, that's literally the Greek word, Magi, these men from the east, uh, Herod warns them or he tells them to go and find the Christ, go and find this king who has been born. And then they tell him what? They said, come back and, uh, and tell us, or tell me where he is so that I might go and worship him. So the Lord warns the Magi in a dream not to return to Herod, but to rather take another route home. So that's the context. So when it says, now when they had departed, that's the Magi. So when the Magi had departed, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Remember that we said before, dreams are a huge theme that we'll see in the book of Matthew, in particular in the first two chapters of Matthew. That phrase, in a dream, is used six times in the New Testament. All six of them are used in Matthew's gospel, and five of them are in the first two chapters of Matthew's gospels. This is a huge theme, and one of the things that we're supposed to see there is that uh, this, uh, this language of in a dream and the Lord uh, speaking in a dream is to show us that the, result, or that the events of Jesus' life are not a result of, uh, of coincidence. They are instead a sign of God's providence. God is sovereignly dictating the circumstances of this story. Right? It's not like Joseph is just getting lucky. He happens to, to, to take a trip to Egypt, right? He, he wins an all-expense trade uh, trip, uh, all-expense paid trip to Egypt at the right time, so he happens to avoid Herod's wrath. That's not what's happening here. God is orchestrating these events for the glory of his son, for the glory of Christ. By the way, God may not give us these inspired, infallible dreams today. I don't think God does give us these inspired, infallible dreams. I think he can give us dreams, but I don't think that I would view them as uh, being uh, inspired or infallible. But the, the fact that God no longer gives these same types of dreams to us doesn't mean that we're any less dependent on his sovereignty and on his providence. 
The same way that God is orchestrating the events of Jesus' life, God orchestrates the events of our life. As Romans says, all things are working together for good. We just even sang some of those lyrics. Or even the fall of a sparrow, or the number of hairs on your head, or the roll of a dice, or the heart of the king, and the number of your days. All of those things are according to the counsel of his will. So God is ultimately sovereign. This isn't just something that uh, was restricted to Jesus' life or restricted to the biblical days. That is true for you and for me. Back to Matthew. So in this dream, God tells Joseph to take Jesus and to take Mary, and he says to flee to Egypt. Why? Why does he say to flee to Egypt? He says because Herod is about to search for the child. Now why is Herod searching for the child? Is it in order to do what he had told the wise men? He told the wise men, go and tell me where he is so that I might too come and worship him. Is that why Herod is going to, do, uh, to search for him? No. What does this text say? It says that he wants to destroy him. That's a quote. He wants to destroy him. And bear in, uh, bear in mind something that Jared said last week that I think is really important for us to grasp as we're reading the text. There's this tendency for us when we read the Bible to side with the good guys and to kind of judge the bad guys. We read it as if we are the good guys and we would make the good decisions. So we read the story of David and Goliath and we're all Team David. And there's a sense in which we should be Team David. David is the good guy in that story. But there's also a sense in which we should read it and we should realize, you know what, I'm kind of more like Goliath than I am like David. What's Goliath's problem? He's fighting against God. What's our fundamental problem as humans? We fight against and rebel against God. So as Jared said last week, there's a tendency when we're reading these opening chapters of Matthew and we think Herod is the worst. And again, that's true. Herod is a really, really evil, bad guy. But, and this is really important that we see this, we should also read it and say, you know what, I'm kind of like Herod. That's me. When I read this text, I see me in this text. Herod wants to dethrone the true king in order to preserve his own autonomy. Herod is willing to do whatever it takes to cling to his own authority and power and privilege. And that exact same underlying spiritual condition lurks in my heart and in your heart. And if you don't see it, you're just blind to that reality. Because that is the essence of sin. We want to be like God, not in the sense that we should. God created us to be like him in the sense of uh, bearing his image. We want to be like him in his freedom. We want to be like him in his independence. We want to be like him in his autonomy and in his authority. In other words, we don't want to just be like God. We want to be God. And in the flesh, we'll do whatever is necessary to make it happen. So yes, you've probably never slaughtered a bunch of babies, but the same tendency that caused Herod to react so violently to the birth of Jesus lurks beneath your breast and in mine. Pride, self-righteousness, vanity, envy, jealousy, fear, anger, it's all there. Let's keep going. Verses 14 through 15. And he rose, that's Joseph, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. 
So now we see that Joseph is going to obey what the Lord had commanded in the dream. That's an important thing for you to grasp here. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Joseph was described as just. He is righteous, which in particular in Matthew's usage usage means that he is obedient to God's will. That's what just means throughout the book of Matthew. It means that he's obedient to God's revealed will. So God tells Joseph to flee to Egypt. And so because he's just, because he's obedient, he obeys. And he obeys by going. Now notice that it says that he went by night. And that's an interesting detail. Anytime you see a detail in the text, part of the the process of Bible study, the first step is observation. You kind of observe and you say, why did he put that detail in there? That's interesting. He He didn't have to mention that. So the fact that he does is interesting. And it could mean a couple of things. It could imply a couple of things. First... It could simply be a reference to the idea that that Joseph was trying to get under the cover of darkness so that they wouldn't be seen, right? If someone's looking for you, it's generally easier to move about by night. But I actually think there's more going on here than just that. I think this is pointing to the immediacy of Joseph's response. I think we're intended to see this and to see that he has a dream and he literally leaves, not just any night, But that very night, in other words, there's no delay. And that's important because traveling at night was much more dangerous in the ancient world, right? Especially if you have a wife and you have an infant child. So I think we're intended to ask the question, why was he willing to take that risk? It is much more dangerous to travel in the Middle East at night in the ancient world than it would in the day. So why would he be willing to take that risk? Part of the answer is because he's just, right? He obeys, and so he obeys instantly. He doesn't delay. There's a sense in which we want to obey, but we want to kind of delay our obedience. That is just partial disobedience, right? So there's a sense in which we're intended to see that, but there's also, I think, we're intended to see the imminency of the danger. This danger isn't delayed. This danger is at his front doorstep. Anyone know how far it is from Jerusalem, where Herod was, to Bethlehem, where Joseph and Mary and Jesus are? Six miles. It's actually less than six miles, right? That's not far. That's like a couple hours walk, less than an hour on horseback. In other words, if Herod is about to start looking for Jesus, they don't have much of a head start, right? They got to move. They got to move quickly, especially because... They're probably facing soldiers, and they have an infant and a mother who's just given birth. So if Herod is going to start looking for Jesus, right? they don't have much of a head start. So they're told to go to Egypt. Now, why are they told to go to Egypt? Well, Egypt was a uh, pretty common destination for Jewish refugees. The Jewish historian Josephus says that there were about a million Jews living in Egypt at the time, particularly in Alexandria. There's another reason... And that is the fact that uh, Egypt has what's called typological significance. We talked about the word typology a couple of weeks back. I mentioned that it's it's really essential that you grasp this concept of typology if you want to understand Matthew. Trying to understand Matthew without understanding typology is kind of like trying to watch a, a foreign movie when you don't speak the language and you don't have subtitles. Right? You might get some of the action, you might know some of what's going on, but a lot of it is going to be lost 
to you. The richness, the beauty of the story is going to be lost. Likewise, you can absolutely grasp the basics of Matthew's gospel without understanding this concept of typology, but it's kind of reading it two-dimensionally or reading it in black and white. When you understand typology, that's going to provide this third dimension or color. So what is typology? Well, according to Graham Cole, typology is the idea that persons, for example, Moses, and events, for example, the Exodus, and institutions, for example, the temple, can, in the plan of God, that's important, it's ordained by God, prefigure a later stage in that plan and provide the conceptuality necessary for understanding the divine intent. That is the coming of Christ to be the new Moses, to affect the new Exodus, and to be the new temple. So typology is when you see some sort of relationship uh, between the Old Testament and Jesus that is not coincidental, but rather providential. God has orchestrated that parallel. You are intended to make that connection. This God-directed, this God-intended prophetic parallel is what is called typology. You see this throughout Scripture, right? As Isaac was the beloved son who carried his own wood to be sacrificed on the mountain. So Jesus is the beloved son who carries his own wood to be sacrificed on a mountain. As Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and as he's wrongfully accused, but that ultimately results in the salvation of his people, so Jesus was betrayed by his own and he was wrongfully accused, but the result of that was the redemption of his people. That's typology, this God-ordained prefiguring and parallel between the Old Testament history of Israel and the New Testament fulfillment in Christ. And so our text today is in particular about Egypt. And Egypt, as a place, as a country, as a land, is filled with typological significance. Let me give you a couple of examples of this typological significance of Egypt. Well, first is obviously Israel was enslaved in Egypt. All right? So Egypt is enslaved in Egypt. Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and it's the place from which the exodus has occurred. And that's really important for you to grasp because Jesus is going to be presented as a new and better Moses. That's typology. Jesus gives this new and better law. He sits down on the mountain in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives this new and better law. In fact, the book of Matthew is going to be directed around these various narratives of Jesus giving these prolonged speeches these prolonged laws like Moses. He's the new and better prophet. And he delivers his people from an oppression that's even greater than physical slavery. He defeats a king that's even more powerful than Pharaoh. And speaking of Moses, if you think back to his birth story, what happens in his birth story? Well, an evil king is afraid, and so he does what? He orders that a bunch of babies, in particular boys, would be killed. All right, if you know the story that we're talking about today in Matthew 2, that should sound eerily familiar. That's typology. What's Herod about to do? He's about to order a bunch of Jewish babies, boys in particular, to be killed. So again, Matthew is intending that as we read these, uh, this, we're making these connections, which means you have to be really familiar with the Old Testament if you're going to understand Matthew. 
As uh, Moses was delivered from Pharaoh's wrath, so Jesus is delivered from Herod's wrath. And in addition to all of that, Egypt is also going to play a really significant role in the book of Jeremiah. We'll actually see Jeremiah quoted uh, in a bit here in, uh, in Matthew 2. But in Jeremiah's day, many Jews had sought to flee to Egypt in order to avoid God's judgment. What's really interesting is that God speaks through Jeremiah and tells them, if you flee to Egypt, you'll actually be killed. You can't just escape my judgment by fleeing to another country. So now you see an inversion of that. By fleeing to Egypt, Joseph and his family will actually avoid being killed because they're actually obeying God. So Egypt isn't just some random locale, right? God isn't just spinning the globe saying, where's a place that Joseph and his family... By the way, I said Jesus was an infant uh, earlier. He's probably a toddler, actually, at this time. But it's not like Jesus spins a globe or, or God spins a globe and says, where's a place that they'll be safe? There's a reason for God to choose Egypt in particular. This is theologically significant. And we see that with this reference to the Old Testament. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. That's a quote from Hosea chapter 11. So you might think if you go back and you read Hosea chapter 11, you're going to be reading it and you're going to so note how obvious it is that there's this messianic prophecy. And you're going to read Hosea 11, you're going to look and you're going to say, that's obviously about Jesus, right? No, that's not actually what happens. Let's look at it. Hosea 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So notice right off the bat, that doesn't seem to be about Jesus at all. It explicitly says it's about Israel. Unless there be any confusion, keep reading. Verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls, balls and offering, uh, burning uh, offerings to idols. So this is definitely not about Jesus. He never sacrificed to false gods. He never burned offerings to idols. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on is called typology. Again, we talked about a couple of weeks ago the difference between a direct fulfillment of Scripture and a typological fulfillment of Scripture. In a direct fulfillment of Scripture, a prophet is looking into the future and he's talking only about Jesus. That's all he's talking about. That's not oftentimes what we're going to encounter in the book of Matthew. Instead, we're going to see what's called typological Fulfillment. He's not a direct fulfillment of the passage. He's a typological fulfillment. What's happening here is Matthew is saying that in Jesus' life, we see the recapitulation of Israel. <laughs> That's a big word you don't use often, probably. Recapitulation, but it's helpful to know. By recapitulation, I mean that Jesus is a summation. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the telos, the end, the purpose, the goal of all the promises and all the hopes of Israel. So you see in Jesus' story a summation uh, of the events in Israel's experience. It's no coincidence that Jesus spends how long in the desert being tempted? 40 days. That's not a coincidental because Israel spends how long in the wilderness? 40 years. It's no coincidence that Jesus has how many disciples? Because Israel has how many tribes? Right? And Jesus was baptized into the Jordan 
as Israel had to cross over the Jordan. And Jesus is exiled from his land, as we see today, just like Israel was exiled from her land. And Jesus was the greatest prophet, priest, and king, just like Israel had prophets, priests, and kings. And as Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai, so Jesus gives a new law in the Sermon on the Mount. And Israel is called the Son of God in some sense in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the actual Son of God. And Israel is described as a vineyard, and Jesus is the vine. And Israel was led by shepherds like Abraham and Moses and David, all of whom worked as shepherds, and Jesus is the good shepherd. You could keep going. In fact, we could keep going for a, a while, but we'd be here for hours because every single stage of Israel's history was relived, was redone, was recapitulated in the life of Christ. You might call this the repetition of redemptive history. I heard someone once describe this concept like uh, the movie Groundhog Day, starring Bill Murray. Right? He lives the same day over and over and over again in order to finally become what he's always failed to be. That's kind of what Jesus does. Israel has lived these experiences over and over and over again and failed each and every time. Each king that rises in Israel or in Judah falls. So there is this experience of failure after failure after failure, and yet Jesus succeeds. He takes all of these motifs of mankind's history and of redemptive history, and he repeats them. As Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, as Israel was exiled from the promised land, so Jesus too is, is exiled. But he's going to repeat these events with an asterisk. For where Adam and Eve and Israel had failed, Jesus is going to succeed. That's recapitulation. That's typology. Let me give an illustration that might help. When I was a kid, I noticed that nearly everyone I knew, everyone I looked up to, wore glasses. My mom and dad wore glasses. My older brother wore glasses. Right? Grandparents, aunts, uncles, even Indiana Jones and Bono, right? So everybody wore glasses, and I thought, glasses, man, that's, that's the epitome of cool. That's really cool. So I kind of thought it was awesome when my mom, my mom suggested that I get my eyes checked. I, in fact, I thought it was so awesome that when I was sitting in the chair and they were doing the whole, can you read the letters, is it better now or is it better now? They were doing that whole thing. I kind of fudged my answers a little bit, <laughs> and I downplayed my ability to see in order to guarantee I could get some, you know, sweet specs. I now realize I was an idiot, all right? <laughs> now, eventually, I really did need corrective lenses. I wore contacts for like 30 years until I finally got LASIK. Great decision. But I mentioned that because corrective lenses is really helpful as an illustration for understanding the concepts of recapitulation and typology. What Matthew is going to do over and over and over again is going to provide lenses for us through which we not only see Jesus, but also by which we're able to correctly see and to correctly understand and interpret the Old Testament. In other words, the promises of the Old Testament are fuzzy until you view them through these Christological lenses. So when Matthew is thinking about Hosea 11... He sees this God-ordained relationship there between Israel's exodus from Egypt and Christ's exile to an eventual exodus from Egypt. Because Christ is Israel, in a sense. 
He is the one who has striven with God. So that's what's going on here. And earlier I mentioned that Egypt has a lot of typological significance, right? We kind of think of places like this uh, in these terms today. For instance, if I say Las Vegas, what comes into your mind? Sin, right? Some people said sin. Yeah. Gambling, lights, sin, lust, whatever it might be. What if I say uh, Paris? Love, romance, the Eiffel Tower, cheese, wine, whatever it might be, all right? California, you think of a post-apocalyptic wasteland. <laughs> so we mentioned earlier, Egypt has a number of these connotations as well. It has significance. One of those was the fact that the Egyptian king, the pharaoh, had once ordered the slaughter of all the Hebrew boys. But Moses in particular was preserved. And so that story is going to be recapitulated in the life of Christ. Let's look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So last week we were introduced to Herod. Herod was known for a couple of things. First, he was a master builder, not like Vitruvius or Wild Style, but some of you got that Lego joke. But he was known for these massive, glorious building projects, right? Caesarea by the sea, the temple complex, Masada, kind of the, the Ritz-Carlton of the ancient world. In fact, you can still go to Israel today and you can see the ruins of these places that Herod had built. If you want to do that, I actually am leading a, a trip there next year. Feel free to email me if you want to go. But that was the first thing that Herod was known for, were these massive, glorious building projects, unlike anything that was seen elsewhere. His other historical mark is much less encouraging. He was known as this tyrannical madman. In fact, Caesar Augustus, the emperor, he said that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. That's a wordplay in, uh, in Greek, but it's a really serious commentary on this guy's character. Some of the things we know about uh, Herod, he murdered three of his own sons, he murdered his mother-in-law, he murdered his brother-in-law, and he murdered his favorite wife. I love that. It's your favorite wife, so you murder her. Why? Why did he do that? Because they were all threats to his throne. He was driven crazy by his paranoia and his envy. In fact, Josephus, the, uh, the Jewish historian, he tells us this really fascinating story about uh, Herod's final days. Herod knows that his death is imminent, and he knows that he's not going to be lamented by those that he had oppressively ruled. And so he has a great idea. He orders that uh, all the nobles from all over Israel join him in Jericho for this uh, great feast that he's going to throw. And they arrive, and surprise, there is no feast. Instead, he imprisons all of them, and he gives instructions to his guards and says, the moment I die, I want you to kill every one of these nobles so that when I die, there will be mourning throughout the kingdom. Now, thankfully, when he dies, the soldiers uh, decide to let the nobles go and didn't do it. But that's the kind of guy that Herod is, all right? He's the ancient Stalin or Pol Pot or Hitler or whatever it might be. He's a really bad dude. So if you're reading this story in the first century, him killing a bunch of babies is pretty much par for the course. 
In fact, this explains why this story isn't recorded outside of the Bible. In fact, this story isn't even recorded in other Gospels. There is no uh, record in extra-biblical literature of Herod killing all these babies. And so some skeptics might think that means that this is therefore unreliable. This is just made up or something like that. Instead, I think the opposite thing is true. I think that this, uh, this just goes to show that this didn't even make the news because it wasn't that shocking. Given what we actually know of the context and of Herod's character from other stories, this wouldn't have been shocking. This wouldn't have moved the needle for them. For one thing, Bethlehem wasn't a major uh, a metropo- metroplex. Right, we might be talking about 15 to 20 kids who were killed. Don't get me wrong, that's a lot. But it's not a lot for Herod, and that's the point. Think about it like this. Imagine that they were doing some sort of excavation somewhere in Germany, and they were to uncover this old video of Hitler ordering the murder of 20 kids. Would that change your opinion of Hitler? Would anyone go from Hitler was this to this? No, that wouldn't move the needle at all, right? He's already as bad as he possibly can be, and the same is true of Herod. So he's estimated based on when the Magi had told him that the baby is two or under, so he orders them to all be killed just to be safe. If he's willing to kill his own sons and his own wife to protect his throne, what's another dozen or so strangers? And bear in mind, as we read this, that same tendency lurks in our hearts. Let's not read this uh, as if we are somehow immune to that underlying envy and anger and rage, and so forth. Let's keep reading. 17 through 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So yet again, we see another typological fulfillment. This time of something written in the book of Jeremiah. Let's look at that passage. Jeremiah 31, 15 says this, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is uh, weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So here's what's happening in Jeremiah 31. The northern kingdom of Israel had been exiled to Assyria in around 722 B.C., roughly 150 years later, in around 586-ish B.C., The southern kingdom of Judah is about to be exiled to Babylon. By the way, a simple way to remember that is just to think about it alphabetically. A before B, the north before the south. The north is carried away to Assyria. The south is carried away to Babylon. So the north has been exiled. The south is about to be exiled. And according to Jeremiah 40, those who were about to be carried into exile were first taken to a place called uh, Ramah. Notice that place name in the passage that we're looking at today in Matthew 2. According to some traditions, Rachel, that's the wife of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, that Rachel was buried near Ramah. So where is Ramah? Where it's, it's a few miles north of Jerusalem. So you might ask the question, well, they're leaving Bethlehem. Why is there a quotation about a place called Ramah? What's the connection between the two? Ramah is a few miles north of, uh, of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is a few miles south of Jerusalem. So it seems like there's not a connection. There is a connection, though, when you understand 
the Old Testament. Because according to Genesis, Rachel died around Ramah while they were traveling. Guess where? Where were they going? We're talking about two places. Not Ramah, but the other one, Bethlehem, right? So she died while they were on their way to Bethlehem. So there's this biblical connection that's established between these two cities in the Old Testament. And Rachel is seen, in some sense, as the mother of the people of Israel. She's Jacob's favorite wife, right? In reality, she's only the physical mother of two of the tribes, Joseph and Benjamin, but she's symbolically seen as the mother of Israel. So think of all the parallels that Matthew is making by quoting this passage. First, he's pointing to this reality that Bethlehem is connected to Ramah. Second, Ramah is the site of the exile that's spoken about in Jerusalem as the people are being exiled to Babylon. They're being gathered there at Ramah. Third, Jeremiah is also talking about the fact that Rachel is weeping for her children who are being exiled or otherwise killed in the events leading to the exile. And then finally, putting it all together, you see all of the connections there. Jesus is being exiled from Bethlehem. Meanwhile, Jewish mothers are weeping because their children have been killed. That's what's going on here. Again, if you're looking for direct fulfillment, it's really hard to understand why Matthew quotes Jeremiah. But if instead you're looking for this redemptive shadow in the Old Testament which points to Jesus, then you can kind of follow Matthew's train of thought there. In other words... Matthew is doing what he's been trained to do. Look at Matthew 13, 52. This is an interesting passage. I think it's, it's really instructive for understanding the entire book of Matthew. And he said to them, that's Jesus, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is what Matthew's doing. He's a scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven, by the king himself, by Jesus himself? And what is his role? What's the role of a scribe? To bring out of his treasure the new and the old. In other words, he's shining the light of Christ on the Old Testament, and he's showing the treasures therein. By the way, this is the same thing that he learned from Jesus. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus is talking to the prophet or, or to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's reading the passage Christocentrically or Christotelically, which means Christ is the end or the purpose or the goal of all of the Old Testament. And it might seem, if you were just reading this, just on the surface level, it might seem like our passage today in Matthew 2 ends on a real downer. Right? There's lamentation, there's bitter weeping. But I don't think that's how we're supposed to read it. Again, I, th I think we're supposed to read it with these Christological lenses, recognizing the story doesn't end there because the scribe brings forth not just what is old, but also what is new. I said uh, earlier that these verses uh, here are a reference to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is actually one of the most significant passages in all of the Old Testament because if you were to keep reading beyond what we just read, the quote there about Rachel weeping and so forth, you were to keep reading beyond that, you get to verses 31 through 34. Notice this, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. Behold, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with her fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. One of the things that's particularly new about the new covenant is that in the old covenant, the covenant community was a mixed community. You have believing, believing Jews and you have unbelieving Jews, but you're still a Jew regardless by virtue of your circumcision. That's not true in the new covenant community of the church. To be a member of the church, you have to be a believer. So the new treasure that Matthew sees in the old is this promise of a new covenant. The covenant that God would give his people new hearts and would remember their sin no more, which wasn't necessarily true of all who were Jewish. In other words, if you just read this passage in Matthew and you don't understand Jeremiah, then you might be inclined to just think, man, this is a really depressing passage. There's lamentation, there's wailing, there's the murder of these children. But when you read it within its proper context, all of a sudden, there's this twinge of hope that I think we're intended to see. This baby, this baby who was exiled will one day return. The story of Matthew is the story of the return of the king, right? This new and better king. But there's more to the story because the return of the king isn't good news for the king's enemies. And that's what we are in and of ourselves. You and I, by virtue of our uh, relationship to Adam, we are God's enemies. So if the Bible just says that this king is going to return from exile and he's going to defeat God's enemies, that's not good news for us. That's really bad news. That means we're under wrath and condemnation and shame and judgment because we ourselves are God's enemies. So again, that's where we need to put on our Jesus glasses and remember another story about the death of children in Egypt. We've talked about a couple of stories already having to do with Egypt. There's another story having to do with the death of children in Egypt. That's the story of the Passover, when all the firstborn of Egypt were killed so that the people of God could live. And so Christ isn't only this new and better king, he's also the new and better firstborn. And he's the new and better Passover lamb sacrificed to redeem his people from their sins and establish this new and better covenant. So as we conclude, I don't have a list of applications in this passage, I just have one. It's one we're going to actually see repeated 40 times in Matthew's gospel. We saw it earlier in this passage and in Jeremiah 31, 31. It's this, one word, behold. That's, I think, the application of this passage. What do you do with this passage? You behold. You look, you see, you observe, you perceive, you watch, you fix your eyes on, you consider, you contemplate. What do you behold? You behold the glory of Christ. You see how he is the great fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. You see how he is the one in whom all of God's promises find their yes and their amen. That's the application of the passage, that you would behold Christ in all his glory. 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would give us these Jesus glasses that we might better see not only the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. We might better understand your word and your will as it's been revealed to us in Scripture so that we might worship. Lord, I think oftentimes we read the Bible and we're looking for particular applications, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife or a better son or a better parent or a better employee, and all of that stuff is good. But at the end of the day, our primary purpose should be to have our lives transformed as we see the glory of your Son and are transformed accordingly. So I pray that you would do that in us. Just confess we can't do it on our own. We just make a mess of things. And so would you, by your grace, by your spirit, would you transform us and help us open our eyes that we'd behold the glories of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.